Welcome to Geneva International, the student podcasting initiative led by students from the Graduate Institute in Geneva. Welcome. My name is Samata Bharadwaj and I'm a first year master student in international affairs at the Graduate Institute. This episode will be delving into the history and crisis of an unusual virus. Now you might think it's the current COVID-19, but it's an infection that has been cited as the most devastating epidemic recorded in world history. If you've guessed it already, it's the Spanish flu. More transmissible than SARS-1 and more deadlier than swine flu, Spanish flu wreaked large-scale havoc during 1918 to 1919. But as coronavirus began spreading beyond China earlier this year, many look for a historical analogy. Now, a lot of unknowns have been known about the Spanish flu, and this has given rise to numerous debates and numerous questions as well. Why has 1918 virus been so deadly? Why was it called the Spanish flu or the Spanish virus? And perhaps what were the repercussions of this virus? Now, let's look at several debates. Let's look at the historical analogy and let's look more into understanding this better. Joining me now is Thomas Gidney, a PhD student at the Graduate Institute. Listeners, right now we're going through a tough time being under lockdown. And as we practice safe and social distancing, we'll be recording this podcast on Zoom call. So without further ado, let's welcome and say hello to Thomas. Welcome, Thomas. Uh, thank you for having me here today. So yes, I'm a fourth year history student in the PhD program. And coming to the end of your thesis, but your thesis isn't about the Spanish flu. Not exactly. So my thesis is actually about how colonies were um, member states of international organizations, such as the League of Nations, uh, the forerunner of the UN. But I work on a similar time period to the Spanish flu. So uh, really 1917 to 1920. And I got, I've been interested in the Spanish flu for a while, looking at this same time period because um, the more and more you look at this period everything focuses around the massive global political crises of this era you know, world war one the collapse of four major world empires the creation of new nation states um, anti-imperial movements in india ireland egypt and korea um, but of course in the middle of this you have this humongous pandemic that has been i would say ignored but definitely underwritten compared to these other political events uh, and this was a disease that killed probably three times as many people, at least um, compared to World War One. And yet there isn't nearly the same amount of research into uh, Spanish flu as there is in uh, as there is regarding World War One. And I think that the current pandemic has really led me to reevaluate my own research um, on how sort of natural disasters such as uh, pandemics affect the sort of um, political ones that we assume are really driven by human events. But why is there so little history written about the Spanish flu compared to, say, World War I or even World War II? So I think there are several reasons, and it sort of touches on how history is written. First of all, I think one of the, um, the issues of history is that it can be quite anthropocentric, meaning that it's centered on, on humans and not so much about how um, natural events can occur. And so when we look at sort of events, dates, decisions, um, social ideas, we see these as the drivers of history rather than sort of, yeah, the diseases and hurricanes and uh, you know, tornadoes, et cetera. 
But there are other reasons too. And I think that it's also about how the diseases was recorded, where it happened. I think Eurocentrism is very present. Of course, Europe wasn't spared. It's called the Spanish flu, even though it didn't actually originate there. So we'll be addressing the point about the name very soon. But um, I've also heard that many European states have suppressed this information uh, while at war uh, about this virus. What about this? Yeah, so this is one of the issues about why perhaps we don't know so much about this um, Spanish flu, why it wasn't talked about as much, was that it did happen during these political um, disasters. So there was um, there was a great move to suppress the, the knowledge of this disease, not unlike what we're seeing in China right now, to carry on the war effort. But also the death tolls didn't weren't nearly as high in Europe as they were in other places in the world. For example, if we look at Britain, it's predicted that around 200,000 people died of Spanish flu in, in Britain. But if you look at a British colony, namely India, for example, it's possible that 12 to 17 million people died. So this was really a very global event that probably had a larger toll um, on people outside of Europe. Obviously, there were much better public health measures put in place in, in colonial centres than in um, colonies where limited public health resources were quickly overwhelmed. Also, I think because it's European perspectives of history have been very dominant, the, sort of the years 1917, 1918, 1919 are, are years dominated by the history of the war and the, the peace treaty that came after it rather than the Spanish flu. The way that states have responded to, um, at least modern Asian states have responded to the virus today is really the opposite of, of back then. I mean, back then it was really um, Asian states that were very badly hit. But today we've seen that most Asian states are very successful tracing and containment of um, coronavirus compared to the Spanish flu. And perhaps this is an, uh, an interesting uh, turning point in global history where we see Asian states being able to contain this much better than European states. Ah, very interesting. I mean, to look at how different Asian states also responded to this at that time and now and looking, looking at that parallel as well. But, uh, but for your research, uh, you looked at different documents from the archives during this time period. Did you come across anything mentioning about the Spanish flu? So I actually saw very little in um, many of the documents from the time period. And of course, I'm really looking at a different topic. So I'm looking at political documents. But considering how sort of humongous this event was, I was sort of wondered why, uh, why it wasn't mentioned more. And in fact, many people were, were carrying on their jobs in, in uh, different administrations as politicians, whilst actually actively being sick as well, but they kept working uh, throughout the war. So I think this brings us to the next limit of history is like who actually writes the history and, and who, were the, uh, who were the political leaders and why were they less affected by Spanish flu? <laughs> That's so strange. As today, we notice many politicians, including Britain's prime minister, has gotten sick. Uh, but at that time, political leaders were known to be least affected by Spanish flu. Um, as you had mentioned, but could you explain a little bit about this information? So many political leaders did get sick, but um, if we look at the Paris Peace Conference, for example, uh, after the after World War One, which created the Versailles Treaty, um, you had many delegates that came across the world to Paris, got sick in Paris, and then brought the disease back to their respective countries. U.S. President Woodrow Wilson got uh, sick during the. Paris Peace Conference, the British Prime Minister Lloyd George also got um, sick, though that was earlier, that was in 1918. Um, he was in also in a very critical condition, uh, very similar to uh, Boris Johnson in many ways. 
Also, uh, this is more of a side note, Trump's grandfather, uh, Friedrich Trump, also died of Spanish flu, showing that you know, history can be a cautionary tale. But the point about these politicians was, and many people in, in government, uh, government, was that a lot of them were quite old, you know, certainly above 50, many of them. And one of the curious things about the Spanish flu was that it definitely affected younger people more than older people. That's literally the opposite of today then. <laughs> exactly. So the worst affected demographic were 28-year-old men, as opposed to today when you know, we're seeing the people in their 70s and 80s are worse affected by coronavirus. But coming back to one question that was quite popular a month ago uh, about younger people, uh, younger populations and people have stronger immune systems. Why were they worse affected than older people? So there are sort of two streams of thought on this point as to why younger people were generally worse affected than older ones. So the first is that the Spanish flu caused an overreaction of the immune system uh, called a cytokine storm. So this is when the immune system turns in on itself and attacks the body whilst trying to kill the virus. So in this case, the stronger the immune system, the stronger the immune response, and thus the more damage caused by the immune system. Interestingly, there's actually a lot of similarities with some of the cases of younger people dying today. So some people think that cytokine storms have actually um, affected younger patients with coronavirus, though obviously the prevalence is considerably less than with Spanish flu of cytokine storm. And the second point that's also debated is that uh, there was belief that there was some level of immunity among older people. The Spanish flu might have resembled something close to another pandemic that occurred in the um, 1890s called the Russian flu, also probably didn't come from Russia, but it killed around a million people. But for those that survived, there's a belief that they might have been given some sort of immunity. So meaning that people were, that were born after 1890 um, wouldn't have been born with this immunity. I see. But when we look at these different types of flu here, Spanish flu, Russian flu, and now President Trump is mentioning coronavirus as the Chinese flu. In the case of Spanish flu, it did not arise in Spain, right? No. So we mentioned this earlier, so it did not come from Spain. I think that's pretty definitive. Spain was not at war during, world, um, during the First World War and had a much freer press whilst everyone else was censoring theirs. So they were able to report on the um, virus more whilst Britain, France, Germany and America all controlled their media more during this, this period, essentially to keep up morale. So this suppression of information really contributed to this idea that that it stemmed from Spain, even if it almost certainly didn't. Okay, but if not Spain, then where? Where did it come from? So it's actually one of those great mysteries, and there's no definitive answer. Spanish flu, like the current COVID-19, is uh, zoonotic. So it comes from animals, and it likely came from um, birds to pigs. So that's sort of the, the transmissibility. And, and obviously, there's a lot of places in the world where People can have you know, keep chickens and pigs, for example, which is where the chickens are believed to be one of the possible animals involved in the transmission. Spanish flu was an H1N1 virus, so a bit like the, the swine flu um, that we had in 2009, 2010. And many historians have speculated over its origins and have conducted different sort of historical investigations to find out where it came from. I see. But is it possible to pinpoint uh, the likely origins of the first wave? Uh, where the first transmission occurred? Yes, so there are three likely candidates right now. But the issue of trying to select the place of origin is that the Spanish flu occurred in 
in different waves. So really what people are trying to do is pinpoint where the first wave occurred. And there's debates as to where that first wave occurred. This is quite different from today, which is where we know with some level of certainty that uh, this disease came from Wuhan in China. There are debates as to where where it emerged in Wuhan, um, whether it was at the seafood um, market or not. But they know with some certainty that it arose in that area. And coming back to the three waves, where were the likely origins of this, for example, the first wave? So some of the most recent research, including a paper that came out last year, was that it might have arisen in 1917 in France. The French, um, the French angle comes from a British virologist called John Oxford, who initially traced the illness to a sort of British hospital camp in Etaples, so in um, northeast France. And this camp had many wounded soldiers, um, many of them recovering from the battlefield. Um, and he noticed that next to this medical camp was a local um, farm that had both chicken, chickens and pigs next to it. So it was seen as sort of a likely candidate for where you have all these wounded men in a compressed area close to, again, like uh, the animals involved in spreading it. And by late 1917, there were sort of local reports that suggested that soldiers were, were either suffering or even dying from a sort of new form of pneumonia. So more recently, Oxford teamed up with a military historian called um, Douglas Gill, and they recently went through um, the military medical records to see if, so again, more archival research trying to find if they could notice anything similar to pneumonia in those records. And what they found was that as early as 1915, there were um, small outbreaks of a very virulent type of influenza among soldiers, so more deadly than what we know of um, Spanish, the Spanish flu that we assumed came later. Um, so the death rate was very high, but the transmissibility was very low, as is very common with very dangerous diseases, is that they often kill the, the, um, the infected before they can spread it. So this virus is believed to have mutated to become less aggressive, um, but more transmissible. And what about the other locations? I'm sure because of the transmissibility of the virus, I'm sure there would have been uh, other locations uh, of the spread of uh, the flu. When I look at the a lot of articles that have come out recently that talk about the Spanish flu, they seem to um, argue that it came from Kansas, which is a very popular theory, but it's probably one of the le- uh, least likely ones. Ah, I see. But why was Kansas the least likely? Well, it's not that it couldn't come from Kansas at all. I mean, um, as we said, the, there were chicken and pig farms there, which is where the Kansas argument comes from. It actually comes from this very famous historian called um, Alfred Crosby in 2003. Crosby wrote the very famous book on the Columbian Exchange, um, which is like the, the spread of um, like different organisms between uh, Europe and Asia to the so-called New World, the Americas, during the colonial period. So he's a very famous historian. But he noticed that there was a barracks in Kansas close to a chicken and pig farm that was noticing a very high level of infections among its soldiers in the spring of 1918. And so in in his version, the first wave of the infection comes in the spring of 1918 rather than before. Um, Now, I think that the reason why this is uh, less likely is that I think there's now sufficient evidence to suggest that there was there were types of influenza already occurring in France before the spring of 1918, and that it's more likely that a soldier brought it back from France to the barracks in Kansas. So this was probably the beginning of a second wave rather than the first wave. Now, we spoke about the origins in France, in Kansas, 
Um, there was a third one, the third wave. Uh, what about that? Not necessarily the third wave, but the third location. So there was some debate that it could have possibly arisen, um, arisen similar to COVID-19 in China. So three completely different regions of the world, France, Kansas, it's in, in, the, in the States, and now we have two East Asia as well, like that the three completely different regions of the world. Yeah, that really kind of shows how how much there is to be discovered about Spanish flu and how little we know. Um, so the, the China theory is based around some statistics that notice that there seemed to be very little impact of the, in the early waves of, of Spanish flu in China, then there seemed to be a very low mortality rate, which led people to believe that there had been a, a wave in China before um, before Europe which um, had given enough people immunity so that China wasn't that badly affected. And that this strain might have been carried by the many Chinese laborers that actually went to work in the trenches in France, because um, China, China was also a, a belligerent in World War I. And many Chinese uh, laborers built the trenches and did a lot of the hard work in, in France. So there was a theory that these workers brought the Spanish flu with them. The Chinese Medical Association has worked very hard to dispel this theory, though. And it's possible they might be right. For example, China itself was actually going through a lot of political upheaval, um, a period of near civil war, uh, political fragmentation in what's sort of known as the warlords period in, in uh, 1917, 1918. So there wasn't a very good record keeping at that point, And there was a lot of fragmentation. So we have to be slightly careful about the statistics. So it's possible that actually Chinese workers brought it from France rather than the other way around. And I'm sure that uh, these weren't the only waves. I'm sure there were other uh, spreads and other outbreaks in history as well. Could you tell me a little bit about the other waves of um, the virus? So where there was a lot of difficulty in trying to work out the point of origin, it, the waves were better understood. and I think they're a lot more established. The Spanish flu was actually very uh, seasonal. If the first or second wave was in the spring of 1918, a new strain of the virus emerged in the autumn of, um, sorry, in 1918. Uh, a new strain of the virus emerged in the um, autumn of 1918, just as the war was coming to an end. And uh, many soldiers were beginning to return home from the trenches and from the war front. And there were very large celebrations in the street and parades to mark the end of the fighting. This wave in the autumn of 1918 was by far the most virulent and killed um, by far the most people and really was the wave that spread the, the furthest throughout the world. And then after that, the biggest wave, there was a, another smaller wave in the spring of 1919 that was less virulent um, than the first, though it's also possible that this might be due to the fact that many of the survivors of the, the large autumn wave um, were protected by immunity to this third wave or fourth wave. And now that we have covered about the waves and understood the historical research about the flu. How does our understanding of uh, the Spanish flu help us to compare to our current situation of, uh, of the COVID and of, of the COVID-19 and how we are currently processing this? Or? So obviously they're very different situations and we live in a very different uh, world and um, I can see why people do look for analogies but I think that providing some, his uh, it's important providing some sort of historical context to how people and governments and societies responded to the sort of the last global pandemic. And if we begin to draw a parallel to the current virus uh, outbreak that we face today, how did they do uh, back then in controlling this outbreak? 
So generally they did very badly. This, I think it's quite clear that the, um, even then the Spanish flu was probably less transmissible than the current coronavirus. So we're actually dealing with a more transmissible disease, but even then uh, perhaps up to a third of humanity um, was infected with the Spanish flu. As we mentioned before, information was highly constrained by governments. It might be now, we might discover after this how, how much information was kept by governments, but there it was very clear that the, by, by prioritizing the war effort, that information was always controlled. Um, many people got sick from, from mass gatherings that weren't closed down, and religious centers across the world. There's the very infamous case of Philadelphia uh, military parade to mark the sort of the return of American troops, which the government essentially wanted to keep open again to keep morale up. So, yeah, so essentially they did, they, they probably would have got a low score in, in dealing with the, the pandemic. Military parades and national gatherings, uh, given that the virus was extremely transmissible, looking at this evidence, there was no lockdown, no national lockdown then. Right. Yeah. So there was nothing I see as nearly as uh, preemptive. If we believe that the disease started in 1917, we know that this was circulating for a very long time before people even reacted. And if you look in the modern case, I mean, the disease was traced relatively early. Obviously, there was um, some covering up of the disease early on, which um, meant that the disease was able to spread to some extent. But yeah, governments reacted much faster and they also reacted much more severely. Back in 1918, most of the lockdowns were instigated by local leaders, so local politicians, mayors, um, rather than on a, on a national level. So data from American cities shows massive differentiation between different uh, public schemes to kind of control the virus. So we've seen everything from you know, very strict enforcement of wearing masks, which we don't see in most Western countries today. You do see in places like South Korea. And you see uh, the difference between cities that, that instigated early shutdowns and those that didn't or lifted their shutdowns too much and how many people were essentially killed because of that. Ironically, actually, New York was one of the most successful cities in the US at mitigating the damage in 1918 as opposed to what's happening today. So, so if you look at a lot of the literature of the so-called flattening the curve, a lot of the the, the data from the Spanish flu has actually been taken to, to show how, how that can, how flattening the curve can work today in, in trying to make sure that the, the disease doesn't overwhelm medical care within our cities. Mm, I see. But there's also some data that shows that cities uh, that did flatten the curve faced a backlash. What about that? So, as I said before, the, the Spanish flu came in, in waves. So people that caught the first wave were generally protected um, against the second. Um, so generally, the, um, for places that were able to protect a lot of the first people from the first wave, it was possible that um, if they didn't instigate shutdowns in the second wave, more people might have died then. Uh, an interesting example is in Copenhagen, which was very badly hit by the first wave, but then had very few deaths in the second wave some level of herd immunity did work when it came to these, these waves, essentially. Does that mean that herd immunity is only a good policy when the virus outbreak happens in waves? Uh, for our listeners, herd immunity is the indirect protection from an infectious disease uh, when a large percentage of population has uh, become relatively immune to this infection. Um, so, yeah, what, what about this? Yeah, this is a slightly controversial point because um, 
the, this was sort of Boris Johnson's initial plan to deal with the current coronavirus by kind of creating herd immunity. And it's true that in the case of the Spanish flu, the Spanish flu certainly died down by the 1920, even though there were probably strains that continued afterwards, it did become endemic for some time afterwards. But there was never anything of the same level of pandemic because there were so many people that caught it that it did create some level of herd immunity. But that's not to say that coronavirus will follow the same trajectory and it really shows how historical analogies are not perfect. First of all, it's, there is there's a lot of conjecture as to whether this will be seasonal or not. Um, this virus seems to be quite resilient and might not actually be very seasonal, so it might still um, be just as effective during the summer. We don't know yet. Also, there's a lot of research that suggests that COVID-19 is more um, stable in Spanish flu, so it's less likely to mutate as um, fast as Spanish flu did. Because we noticed with Spanish flu, it kept on trying to find the right balance of transmissibility and deadliness because um, either it was too deadly and not transmissible enough, or you know, essentially, yeah, it, it was trying to find its kind of Goldilocks zone. With coronavirus, we really have something that is extremely transmissible and very successful. So there'll be less of an evolutionary impetus for it to change, meaning that it might not come in waves in the same way. So this kind of herd immunity idea comes with a lot of sort of significant risks of obviously a lot of people dying in the first wave if it's not properly controlled. And, you know, that would be, that would be wasted essentially if there was no second wave. So it's really based on conjecture. However, in the long run, if this disease does persist, and it probably will, it will keep persisting until some sort of herd immunity or vaccine has been achieved. And so it's pro probably likely that governments will aim for some sort of controlled herd immunity over the summer where they'll slowly open up some businesses and try and essentially walk, work towards a sort of controlled spread of the disease so that immunity is, is steadily spread. And now coming back to the Spanish flu outbreak, uh, we shouldn't compare and base our responses on historical examples then, uh, given that the virus itself behaves and acts so differently in so many different contexts. Mm. Yeah, that, that's, um, that's certainly true. And each disease is, is unique in many ways, even if there are similarities. And each disease will infect people in, in a different fashion and will and will spread in a different way too. So they're, they're quite unpredictable. But what we can gain from history is to look at how people and authorities and policymakers reacted. Even if we do live in a very different world, it offers some sort of roadmap to see how people behaved and to see you know, what sort of policies worked, what did not. So we get a sort of sense of precedent and how things, how things worked once upon a time, rather than going in completely blindly. Mm, yeah, very true, actually. Uh, okay, let's look at the immediate response to the disease. Uh, what were they? What were some of those immediate responses to the Spanish flu? So one of the things that sort of chimed with me was that, um, so when Trump was going on about um, chloroquine and how effective it could be, and it was touted as a possible cure, um, there, was a, there was a sort of a spate of people going to hospital or even dying from overdosing on chloroquine or similar products that just contain some sort of chloroquine derivative. In the book by Karen Starko, um, they suggest that there were many deaths in 1918 because of um, aspirin overdose. Essentially, aspirin was this sort of wonder drug of the early 20th century, and, and essentially it was prescribed for many things. And um, obviously, because aspirin can help reduce a fever, a lot of people thought that it had some 
um, curative properties. But the issue was that doctors were starting to prescribe eight times the normal dose. There is this sort of um, knee-jerk reaction that you see where people will start kind of trying to grab cures they think will work. And speaking of those immediate cures that could work, let's look at another uh, reactive behavior. Hoarding of the toilet paper. How was that response like then, back then? Yeah, well, uh, due to the war, there couldn't have been too much hoarding of toilet paper because there was already um, a lot of rationing by governments um, prior to the outbreak of the Spanish flu. So the authorities were much better actually in dividing the limited supplies of goods um, at that time. So it wouldn't have been possible to go on and, and have made a, a sort of um, fort of toilet paper in your living room. Um, and so, yeah, so hoarding, hoarding was usually easier to control in, in, in countries where the governments had already a lot of control over the supplies of goods. And another reactive, uh, but now in case of a negative reactive response uh, on xenophobia. Uh, could you tell me a little bit about if there was any sort of discrimination? Uh, a lot of news articles have surfaced now of cases of xenophobia um, that that have been reported in many parts of the world because of COVID-19. Were there any sorts of this discrimination like this during that time? So when, when the current coronavirus broke out, there was a noticeable rise in uh, certainly anti-Asian, anti-Chinese uh, racism in a lot of Western countries. And this is clearly being aggravated by, well, polit politicians, and he was already been named, I think, um, who are trying to deflect their own uh, policy failures. But th this was also a response to some extent with the, the Spanish flu. Obviously, it was less clear in the terms of where the uh, virus originated from, as we discussed before. So it was difficult to sort of blame one group of people, but people were still able to sort of widely accuse different peoples of doing it. So obviously, some blamed the Spanish, but some also said it was the French or the Italian flu. Some documents even call it the uh, the Hun flu. Uh, the Huns were the, was the as the pejorative name for the um, the Germans at the time. So the, there was a sort of idea that the Germans were, were were spreading this around to win win the war essentially. So yeah, people were sort of blaming everyone else, but without blaming themselves essentially. Ah, interesting. The Hun flu was sort of prominent during that time. Um, and in people's minds and the, the time of war. Nevertheless, how did that change uh, society and society's thoughts, societal thinking? So they, they often say that the crises accelerate history and the Spanish flu was, a, was definitely a major crisis, but it was one on top of many other humongous crises. Um, um, there's a sort of similar argument when you look at the Black Death in the Middle Ages, the plague, where they sort of see the, the massive death of the peasant class as a accelerator in social movements because there was a higher value for, for peasants in the 14th century. And I mean, you could say the same thing in 1918, 1919, perhaps. You have these humongous events happening. You've got the, uh, we mentioned it before, the end of empires, the rise of, of um, communist Russia. So there's a very fast social acceleration in many ways. Now, often these are attributed to human events, such as, you know, again, the war, or in the case of anti-colonial nationalism, something called the the Wilsonian moment um, when Woodrow Wilson seems to endorse the idea of national self-determination. But I mean, these kind of gloss over these huge events like, like the Spanish flu. So I think a lot of these events that are happening in 1918, 1919 and 1920 have to be reevaluated in a new light with, in, in light of the Spanish flu. 
Now, keeping aside uh, the social context of this um, of the outbreak and the various crossovers between different events, let's look at another aspect of it: the major economic issue or the major economic crisis. I'm sure this would have also been something that would have been affected during that time. So, could you tell me a little bit about how people responded to the economic issues uh, in 1918 because of this? Yeah. So again, unfortunately, like. This is where analogies break down again. The world was very different, and one has to remember that this came on the sort of tail end of the first great era of globalization. So, in the 19th century and early 20th century, there was a lot of interconnectedness in terms of trade and travel. The war really changed that. So, the level of globalization had already kind of collapsed due to the the, the fighting. Essentially, the, most of the globalization that was after that was troops moving around from different countries and goods and supplies moving around to. Fuel the war effort, so it wasn't really the same sort of financial or commercial types of, of of trade. But because there was a war happening, there was generally full employment. So, despite the fact there was a flu, you know, people kept the factories open to build weapons. There were a lot of men in the army. Obviously, a lot of women were brought into the labor force who had not uh, previously been in the mainstream labor force. One recent American article suggested that there there were citywide attempts to sort of kind of create lockdowns where people wouldn't go to work and that in the cities that were able to control the level of infection there was faster economic rebounds but i mean the, again this is very different because the spanish flu was a, a disease that infected the working you know, the working age you know people in their 20s um, rather than the elderly the war the, because of the war there was no sort of economic halt like today states couldn't afford to sort of lock everything down so this is definitely unprecedented this is really sort of a heart attack in the economic system but i think it's increasingly likely looking at the current news that unlike the war which you know lasted several years it's looking like the governments are going to slowly reopen parts of the economy over the summer and where where we could possibly find some sort of parallel is that the when the war did end and you had all these troops returning and uh, essentially all these factories that had been nationalized there was a humongous amount of unemployment and that did drive a lot of industrial action so you might possibly some, see something on this case about the high unemployment that's caused by the coronavirus and how that affects labor uh, labor movements after after this is all over. Hmm, okay. But back then there were already predictions of what the world would world would look like uh, post the virus outbreak. How useful is the history of Spanish flu in saying what were the most likely outcomes and comparing that to today uh, that now we see a certain flattening of the curve um, happening. I'm kind of curious about this. What would happen? Uh, how useful is that uh, analogy there? Yeah, and I, I think I've given this disclaimer several times, but we obviously live in a very different global context in 1920, so it's difficult to directly say what the outcomes are. But I think that everyone is pretty clear. I think at this point that there's going to be a very different relationship between individuals, both personally and financially, with the with their state, uh, for better or for worse. I think that's a likely outcome. In the case of Spanish flu, this sort of already happened before the outbreak because obviously the people's lives were definitely controlled by the state um, to control the war effort. So again, many industries were were nationalized. A lot of the economy was nationalized um, to keep churning out war material, and there was considerable social efforts to um, keep morale up and keep people um, keep people fighting essentially. And that it also involved the surrender of a lot of civil liberties. So when the um, uh, when the spanish flu finally um, arrived there was already considerable centralization of power um, in the hands of the governments 
I think one of the questions is how um, how long will governments try and retain these civil liberties when uh, when the disease is over? I mean, for example, I mean, uh, I mentioned the differences between Britain and India, and uh, there was, in India there was certainly the case of the colonial government attempting to retain some of its emergency powers after the war and after the Spanish flu, essentially to well, essentially retain its authoritarian uh, nature. And I mean, you might see parallels in some other states. I mean, if we look at Hungary, there's been accusations that Viktor Orban has used this as a as a power grab to some extent, that he might not be, have to relinquish power when um, the coronavirus dies down. On Conversely, we might actually see more uh, communitarian behavior as well. So, I mean, a lot of people are going to require um, some sort of income from the state these days uh, because a lot of private companies just can't pay their workers right now. The economic disruptions after saw after World War One did lead to these sort of huge industrial actions and the, the rise of the Labour Party in Britain, for example. And it, it's possible that the sort of level of unemployment that we see um, at the end of this crisis was, will create sort of more active Labour participation and perhaps more unionisation. Perhaps one of the more unprecedented results that I think what is a very recent uh, event, I think it happened uh, yesterday before the recording of this podcast, was that uh, Trump cut American funding for the World Health Organization. Um, this is literally the opposite of what happened with Spanish flu. So it's precursor of the uh, international, uh, the sorry, the health organization of the League of Nations, which actually was partially created because of the Spanish flu. I mean, it was really created at the end of it. You know, it was really created to internationalize our responses to to pandemics. And this is literally the opposite response. As you can see, there are many significant differences between the Spanish flu and the coronavirus. But I think you know, history does provide some context as to the direction that societies might take in, um, during a crisis so that they're not completely blind. But it's not a perfect roadmap either. Wow. Yeah, very true. And that was a wonderful takeaway to the parallels in terms of the societal responses, the political upheavals, the economic repercussions. Uh, I want to thank you, Thomas, for enlightening our listeners and me, of course, on the flu. Uh, I hope that uh, you learned a lot more about this uh, deadly virus. Uh, thank you for tuning in on another episode of Health International. And I hope to see you soon. Uh, till then, take care, practice safe and social distancing and stay well. And I hope that you had a lot to take away from this conversation on the Spanish flu, uh, looking at the different aspects, the historical analogies that we did talk about, and perhaps looking at why it was even called the Spanish flu. And now we know. <laughs> thank you. Stay well. Bye-bye. No, thank you for inviting me. We've been walking through the forest With blood on our hands We got lost It's such a foreign land